Um, this morning's reading is taken from um, the book of Corinthians, uh, book 1, uh, chapter 1, verses uh, 10 to 18, and can be found on pages 1144 in our church Bibles. So, 1144. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another and what you say, and that there be no divisions among you but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, inform me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. I am very excited. I love starting off a new preaching series, and I'm especially excited about this one, because this letter from Paul the Apostle to the early church in Corinth was written so close, just about 25 years or so after that first Easter day after the resurrection of Jesus. And it's like opening a little window onto that first century church, seeing what they were doing, what they were struggling with, what made them tick, what made them fall out, what got them excited. And I think it speaks powerfully into our world today. But can I suggest that you take a Bible and open it to page 1144? The reason I ask you to do that is because Each week, we're going to take a look at actually one whole chapter. And this week is is chapter one. There are 16 chapters, so it's 16 weeks, four months. And today, we're going to look at uh, chapter one. Um, And so if you have a Bible, then you can not only see what was read out uh, by James, but also the rest of the passage, which I'm going to refer to. So let me begin with a prayer. Lord, thank you that we have this wonderful insight into the first century church in Corinth. Please be with us as we learn from this letter how we might apply it to our 21st century lives today. Thank you that you call us into specific places to live, to work, to worship and to witness. Speak to us by your spirit and change us more into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, so we've got one page 1144. I'm going to cover, as this is a kind of scene-setting talk, I'm going to cover quite a lot of ground quite quickly to give you some context. But I want to begin with a question. And that question is this. Who do you follow? Who do you follow? In other words, who do you notice? Who do you take direction from? Who do you follow on Twitter, on TV, on the newspapers, in sport? Which megachurch leaders podcast do you tune into? 
<laughs> what books do you read? Although I can probably hear some of the young mums thinking, are you crazy, Pads? We don't have time for any of that stuff. <laughs> but we do follow someone or some people. We are impressed. We're impressed by some people. And we try to imitate them or learn from them. And depending on who it is, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And if, you, if when I ask that question, you jump straight in with the name Jesus, well done, that's the right answer. But don't miss out appreciating or realising who perhaps you follow even unconsciously as you live your life. For example, some people like to supplement their Sunday morning um, input, if you like, with, by listening to great Christian speakers or preachers of past, present some people might listen to a Timothy Keller, a T.D. A TD Jakes, a Nicky Gumbel, a Pope Francis, a John Stott, Chuck Missler, Gordon Fee, Tom Wright, Leon Morris, Rick Warren, Charles Swindle, John Piper, Billy Graham, and the list could go on and on and on. These are all highly respected Christian speakers, authors, commentators, and biblical scholars. So who do you follow? Or you might follow... EastEnders, or Casualty, or Game of Thrones, or Manchester City, or Arsenal, or if you're really brave, Reading Football Club. The point is, whoever we listen to, or watch, or follow, has an impact on who we become. If you follow someone who is humble and servant-hearted, and always has something good to say about other people, you will become more like that. If you follow someone who is self-centered or self-important, then you'll become more selfish. If you follow someone who swears a lot, it'll be difficult not to swear. And in this letter to the church in Corinth, Paul is extremely interested in who the, the Corinthian Christians are following. Look at verse 12. Paul says to them, one of you says, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas, another I follow Christ. Paul is very interested in who they are following. So who are we following? So I'm going to come back to this idea shortly. But first I want to give you some context for this letter. Because I think it's really interesting. Corinth, as I'm sure you know, is in Greece. And uh, it's here, shown by that little red circle I've just put up in the middle of the slide. And at the time that Paul is writing, in around 53 to 54 AD... It was a thriving, growing, entrepreneurial city where people could make their fortunes. And here's why. Where that red circle is, there is a strip of land that joins mainland Greece to the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And that's where Corinth is. And that strip of land is about four miles wide at the narrowest point, separating the Aegean Sea on the right, which gives access to all of the cities on the eastern side, from the Ionian Sea on the left, which gave access to all the cities to the west, including Rome and Italy. Rome, the head of the empire. Now, the boats hated sailing around to the south of the Peloponnesian Peninsula because it took forever against the prevailing winds. And also, once you got round the southern point, there were often very choppy seas and it gave rise to shipwrecks. But if you sailed to Corinth... You could unload your ship, stick your goods on a cart, cart them four miles across that strip of land, put them on another ship, and off you went. It saved huge amounts of time, and it was much less risky. 
Or, if your boat was small enough, you could even drag your boat up onto the first century equivalent of a low loader, and they would push your boat across that strip of land, and then you could pop it back in the water and carry on to Rome. A satellite picture shows um, that strip of land today, and you can probably just make out a line, a horizontal line, going straight across the centre of the strip of land, and that is the Corinth Canal. Today, boats can sail straight through without with no problem. But it wasn't there when Paul's day. And there were, instead, where that canal is, there was just a straight Roman road on which the goods and the boats travelled backwards and forwards. What all that meant was the vast majority of all the trading between the cities to the east and the cities to the west went through this eye of the needle that was Corinth. And coupled with that fact, it had been resettled as a Roman colony, which meant it was well-ordered and politically stable, plus the fact that it had fantastic natural resources, plentiful, unlimited supplies of fresh water, and plentiful supplies of good stone for building, Corinth at that time was like the Silicon Valley of the Mediterranean, attracting money and investment and people coming from all over to make their fortunes. That was the the culture of Corinth. According to Anthony Thistleton... Um, His commentary on 1 Corinthians, it was highly competitive, aspirational. It was all about self-achievement, self-promotion, self-sufficiency. A place where knowledge and wisdom and success and personal freedom were valued much more highly than love or respect for others. Anyway, the Apostle Paul arrives in Corinth in AD 50 probably around March. And we know from the book of Acts, chapter 18, that he meets Aquila and Priscilla. And Aquila and Priscilla are settlers who had arrived after the Jews, because they were Jews, they'd been expelled from Rome by the Emperor Claudius in AD 49. And they'd settled in Corinth because it was a good place to do business. And what's more, they were tent makers, Aquila and Priscilla, which happened to be Paul's trade as well. And so Paul stayed with Aquila and Priscilla and worked in their business as a tent maker. And tent making was a very good business in Corinth in those days because the city hosted the Isthmus Games, which was second only to the Olympic Games, which, was, which meant that thousands and thousands of people would descend on Corinth every so often for the games and tents with a temporary accommodation for all of the people who came into the city. So it was a thriving business. So Paul settles there and he begins to preach the gospel in the synagogue. First he goes to the synagogue where his fellow Jews are and he starts preaching the gospel. Some of the Jews like what he says, some of them don't. And they turf him out and Paul sets up church next door to the synagogue and many of the Jews are converted and and become Christians. And the church of Corinth is born and grows and flourishes. And eventually, Paul leaves Corinth in late AD 51. So he was there just 18 months um, from when he arrived. And as we'll see later, the congregation of Corinth is a highly diverse congregation. It's drawn from rich and poor from Roman citizens or other freed people who'd come in from outside, Jews, non-Jews, some were slaves. So there was every strata of society within the church family at Corinth. 
But one of the really interesting things is the religious culture of the city. Because in many ways, first century Corinth had much more in common with 21st century Britain than perhaps the Victorian age had with 21st century Britain. And here's why. Rowan Williams, in his little book, Meeting God in Paul, says that if you'd gone up to somebody in Corinth in Paul's day and asked them, what religion are you? They probably would have been completely baffled. They wouldn't have known what you meant. Because apart from the Jews, no one else would have identified themselves with any religion as we understand it. And the reason is that they lived in a world where the gods, and there were dozens of them, the gods, were just a normal part of life and and the universe, if you like. And the gods were people you had to reckon with on a daily basis, take into account, just like you would keeping on the right side of your boss or keeping on the right side of the local magistrate or whoever could positively or negatively affect your life. And so, you might get up in the morning and you might light a candle to Jupiter. And then you might, at lunchtime, go and eat some sacrificial meat at the Temple of Venus. You might spend half an hour with a prostitute at the Temple of Aphrodite. Now, I know that sounds a bit extreme, but do you know, in Paul's day, there were more than a thousand prostitutes working in the Temple of Aphrodite. It's hard to imagine, but the goddess of love, that's what happened in their culture. And if you really wanted to impress someone, you could go and take a bath in the blood of a freshly slaughtered bull in the temple of Mithras. Yuck. I'm not sure I'd like to do that. And at the weekend, you might go to a festival in honour of Jupiter. But the whole point is this. In no sense were you a member of a faith community. They, They just wouldn't have understood that. It was highly individualistic, consumerist, pick-and-mix culture with a lot of similarities to our culture. A person in Reading today might sleep with some crystals under their pillow for protection. They might consult their stars in the newspaper or on, on an online app. They might tune into a white witch on YouTube for some advice on anxiety. They might head up to the mansion house for the psychic fair for a tarot card reading or buy some special magic potions to help with their health. And yes, maybe even pop into church once a year to experience the peace of the Christ child. That person would never identify with a religion. They might say they were spiritual, and the Corinthians were very spiritual, but they didn't belong to any faith community. So as we take a look at life in, as a Christian in first century Corinth, I think Paul's letter speaks powerfully into the individualistic, pluralistic and consumerist culture of 21st century Britain. So now to the letter. There are two things that sparked off Paul writing this letter. Firstly, if you look in uh, verse 11 of chapter 1, you'll see that Paul has received a report from some people, presumably Christians, in Chloe's household, stating that there are quarrels among the Corinthian Christians. Now, we don't know exactly who Chloe is. Well, we know who this Chloe is, but (laughs) we don't know exactly who Chloe in Scripture was. But clearly, she was a person of some influence and well-known to the church in Corinth, or Paul wouldn't have mentioned 
her, uh, but wouldn't have bothered naming her. At any rate, Paul takes these reports very seriously, and he addresses these quarrels in the early chapters of the letter. And the second reason he wrote the letter was because Paul had received a letter himself from the church in Corinth, outlining a whole number of questions and issues for which they were seeking answers and advice from Paul. We know from chapter 7, uh, if you look, if you, chapter 7 verse 1, Paul says, now for the matters you wrote about, and then goes on to address them. So chapters 1 to 6 address the reports from Chloe's household, chapter 7 and going forward address the letter that was sent to Paul. But in this first chapter we're looking at today, Paul is responding to the reports from Chloe's household of a number of splits in the church which concern a kind of celebrity culture that had crept into the church of Corinth about which apostle people were inclined to follow. And as I said earlier, verse 12 I follow Paul, another. I follow Apollos, another. I follow Cephas. By the way, Cephas is the other name for Peter, the Apostle Peter. So it's, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter, and still another, I follow Christ. How inclined are we to do exactly the same thing? To follow particular Christian teachers because we like their style, their delivery, their charisma... How much are we in danger of narrowing our understanding of who God is by how we limit and select the people we listen to? And clearly, the Christians in Corinth are attributing to one apostle or another greater wisdom or intelligence or status or power, because in verses 18 to 25, Paul refutes this notion of celebrity following by saying in verse 20. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? What does he mean by that? Well, the Corinthian culture was a success-based culture. It mattered how well you did, in particular, who you were connected to and how many people listened to you. Today, people are rated by the number of views on YouTube, the number of followers on Twitter, the number of copies sold, the amount of money when a footballer changes hands, or the number of series a drama runs for. Do you know, the early early Corinthians would have found our culture completely normal. They would have have got it. They would have recognised it. But Paul says, no, you've got it all wrong. And the central verse of this chapter... The central verse of this chapter is verse 18. This is what it's all about. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What does Paul mean by that? Well, If you're a Corinthian, in that prevailing culture of success based on personality and charisma and gifting and intelligence and good looks and charm and and all of that, the message of the cross is incomprehensible. How can you go to a boomtown success-driven city and tell them that they need to follow a man who was nailed to a cross like the worst of common criminals? It's balmy. Jesus sounds like a complete disaster. It's absolute foolishness. 
Martin Hengel says that in Roman society, death on a cross was regarded as brutal, disgusting and abhorrent, reserved for convicted slaves or terrorists, and was never even mentioned in polite society. And so to people who were used to putting faith in their own or other people's success rather than Christ, the idea that salvation lies in a crucified Messiah was utter madness. Yet Paul says those success-driven people, those are the people who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, in other words, us Christians who do follow the crucified Messiah, the cross is the power of God. Notice, by the way, that Paul refers to us who are being saved, present tense. He counters the concept of a kind of one-off salvation moment. He presumably believes that the Corinthians have kind of taken their salvation too much for granted. But actually, the New Testament does affirm a past, present, and future element to salvation. Nicky Gumbel always teaches that we have been set free from the penalty of sin when we believed in Christ, that we are being set free from the power of sin as we're being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and we will be set free when Christ comes in glory. We'll be set free entirely from the presence of sin when Christ comes in glory. And as Anthony Thistleton says, the Apostle Paul wants the Corinthians to understand that they are still on a journey, one that requires self-discipline, reflection, further understanding, and most of all, humility. In the final paragraph of chapter 1 on page 1145, Paul does precisely that. He asks them to reflect on who they were before they knew Christ. Who were we? Think of yourselves. Who were we before we knew Christ? I don't know about you, but I was very self-centered. I was very materialistic. Paul says, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. In other words, there is absolutely nothing about us, nothing about our achievements, our intelligence, our wisdom, that gives us any sway with God at all. None of that counts. It's all down to what Jesus has done for us. And that is such good news. It's such good news. So how can we take this chapter and Paul's warnings and encouragements and turn them into growth in our own Christian lives? Well, let's look very briefly at how Paul steers them away from individualism and factionism and calls them towards unity around the message of the cross. Let's go back to verse 2. Even in the introduction, Paul describes the church not as split, but as one. He says to the church of God in Corinth, and he could have stopped there because that's who he was writing to, but he goes on to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people together with all those everywhere 
who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Paul insists that all Christians everywhere together are God's church. No splits. We accept every other Christian everywhere because God has called them and made them our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we would all do well to remember that whether we're in the church of Corinth or Ephesus or whether we go to St. Matthew's or All Saints or the Vineyard or the Salvation Army or wherever it is, we are all one church under Jesus Christ. Do you know, I always have been so impressed when I've been to Alpha conferences, and I've been to many at Holy Trinity Brompton in London. Holy Trinity Brompton is the largest Anglican church in the country. I think they've got a congregation of about four and a half thousand, something like that. Um, But at these Alpha conferences, there are Christians there from every denomination, every single denomination, every country. And despite the fact that Holy Trinity Brompton itself comes in for quite a lot of criticism from others, probably due to jealousy more than anything else, the culture there is amazing. I have never heard a bad word spoken about any other church or denomination in that place. And that unity pervades all the meetings. They may get shot at from outside frequently and by other Christians, but they never shoot back. They bless that should be our attitude too. We should never take pot shots at other churches, other denominations, because every pot shot we take at another church or another Christian is a pot shot at Jesus Christ himself, because we're all the body of Christ. The second thing, so we're called by God to be together. The second thing is... We can emulate Paul in his thankfulness in verses 4 to 9 for all the Christians in the church and the many different ways that God has gifted them. Sometimes, you and I, we tend to pick and choose a bit, don't we? We give thanks for some of our gifted friends in the church, but do we ignore or even resent some others who, for some reason or another, annoy us or try our patience And Paul reminds the Christians that God is faithful, that they're called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. So just as Inga did, actually, let's always include prayers of thankfulness for our church family in our times with God, in our quiet times, and in our corporate worship. As we thank God for one another more and more, so our love for one another will grow into fruitful relationships which build up the body of Christ and glorify God. And thirdly and finally, let's make sure as Paul implores the Corinthians to do, to put Jesus at the centre of everything, to follow him, not others, remembering that it is the cross that is foolishness to those who are perishing, but the power of God to us who are being saved. And part of that is reflecting on ourselves with humility, being fully aware that it is by God's love for us and his grace in what Jesus has done for us on the cross and not by our wisdom or our Bible knowledge or our charisma or our social standing or how many Twitter followers we have or whatever else it is. It's not by those things that we're made righteous. 
but only by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And that is such a relief. It's such good news. And so, says Paul, in the final words of the, of the chapter, if we're going to boast, let's only boast in the Lord. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you call us into fellowship, that you unite us by your spirit, We thank you for the cross. We thank you that although it is foolishness to those who are perishing, it is the power of God for those of us who are being saved. We pray that you would help us to pray for one another, to extend the hand of generosity to one another, that we would be hospitable to one another, that we would encourage one another and that the body of Christ here at St. Matthew's would glorify Jesus more and more. For his sake, amen.